Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Saturday, April the 16th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, April the 18th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 104th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight on Bringing Light into Darkness, just two days after the 157th anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, we dedicate this show to all of those African Americans of our country that have suffered from systemic racism. We also end the show with an update from Mike Whitney, investigative journalist on the pending Russia-Ukraine conflict and the pending Russia offensive. Enjoy. Welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. This segment of tonight's show seeks to show how through systemic oppression, which cumulatively can be described as systemic racism, that the relentless subjugation of African-Americans access to the equality in the pursuit of success of meeting basic material needs and a life of dignity has faced a history of obstacles that we will look at tonight. The subjugation of the black community has been sustained first through slavery and then post-slavery following the Emancipation Proclamation that took effect in December of 1865. We will see how freedom did not mean equality and this profound inequality has continued right up until today. Through Jim Crow period, followed by modern-day forms of discrimination, the result has been the continued disenfranchisement of the African-American population of the United States. So is the nature and the result of systemic racism. It is worth mentioning that the primacy of wealth with respect to living a life free of need and want is imperative. In fact, it is a prerequisite for freedom, a prerequisite for liberty. Without it, there can be none. And it should be self-evident, although it is rarely discussed, that the basis of wealth is the collective value created by human labor. And slavery is, is just the most egregious form of the appropriation of another person's labor. And in fact, slavery in the New World is what generated the immense wealth accumulation of the colonizing nations of the world. France, we've talked about, perhaps owned the most profitable slave state, St. Dominique. And later, following the first successful slave revolt in world history, St. Dominique became Haiti. But before the revolt, it was the slave-generated wealth that created St. Dominique's status as the most profitable colony in the world. And it jettisoned 
France into a world economic power off the back of the slave trade. So I think that's essentially to keep in mind. Slavery at its core is 100% unpaid labor, usurping the value created by another human being for your own benefit. However, the same can be said regarding the wealth of nations regarding our own country, namely that on the basis of slavery, of this unpaid labor off the backs of slaves, that is what jettisoned the United States into the world's greatest economic power and arguably set into motion those forces that are responsible for the great racial wealth divide that characterizes 21st century America. By the time of the Civil War, there were some 4 million black slaves. In a very informative, well-put-together blog by Hannah Pacman, dated June 19th on Juneteenth of 2020, entitled Juneteenth and the Broken Promises of 40 Acres and a Mule, she describes that broken promise. Quote, Union General William T. Sherman's plan to give newly freed families 40 acres and a mule was among the first and most significant promises made and broken to African Americans. As the Union Army gradually took over Confederate territory, there was a question as to what freedom really meant for emancipated slaves. Without property, money, or an education, most did not have a clear or immediate path toward economic independence. Union General William T. Sherman, it should be noted, was not an abolitionist, and the idea to redistribute land was not his own. Indeed, it was presented to Sherman and Secretary of War Edward M. Statton by a group of Black ministers in Savannah, Georgia, who told them, quote, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor, end quote. Just four days later, on January 16, 1865, Sherman issued his special field order 15, which commanded that 400,000 acres of property confiscated from Confederate landowners be redistributed to Black families in 40-acre plots. By June of the same year, the land had been allocated to 40,000 of a total of 4 million freed slaves. Mules were not included in the order, but the Union Army did give some away as part of the effort. But the order was short-lived. President Andrew Johnson, who had owned slaves and publicly shared his beliefs of white supremacy, overturned the order before the end of the year and returned the land to the slave owners and traders who had originally owned it. The long-term financial implications of this reversal is staggering. By some estimates, the value of 40 acres and a mule for those 40,000 freed slaves would be worth $640 billion today. That's 2020. The author goes on to explain the consequences of this disenfranchisement of Blacks. Again, landless and in need of income, many former slaves were forced into sharecropping, a form of indentured servitude in which a landowner rents out plots of land to laborers in exchange for a portion of the crops produced. In addition to providing land, landowners often also extended credit to the sharecroppers to purchase materials like seeds and fertilizer from them. Typically, this arrangement was only marginally better than slavery. Landowners were known to charge unfairly high interest rates and intentionally underpay sharecroppers, keeping them in an endless cycle of debt and poverty. And as a result, the great racial wealth divide continued to expand. So tonight, what we wanted to show is reveal that our history of this country and African-Americans' status in this country since the end of slavery, right up until today, as we present this show, has continued to put obstacles in the way of wealth accumulation for Blacks in America. In fact, 
well into the 21st century, there is a staggering racial wealth divide. And this wealth divide, of course, was initiated by slavery, but a close examination of wealth in the United States finds evidence of these staggering racial disparities that continue into 21st century America. According to a December 2020 report by Brookings Institute, citing the Federal Survey of Consumer Finances 2016 report findings, there is an enormous disparity between the wealth of Black and white Americans. According to the 2016 Survey of Consumer Finances, the median white household has a net worth of $171,000, which is 10 times the net worth of the median Black household of 17,100. This, of course, explains why Black households are overrepresented among the poor. And these statistics were reported by the Brookings Institute, closing the racial gap requires heavy progressive taxation of wealth by Vanessa Williamson, a December 9th, 2020 article. And the importance of wealth inequality cannot be overstated. The reason wealth matters is reflected by February 2016 research at the Brookings Institute, where they analyzed life expectancies for men who were among the top 10% of earners and compared those to those that were at the bottom 10% of earners. And for men born in 1950, the bottom 10% of earners, their life expectancy was 14 years shorter than for those among the rich, top 10% of earners. So you can see that poverty and wealth disparity means one to two decades shorter lifespans in the United States of America into the 21st century. So the primacy of wealth inequality, which is rarely covered by our media, rarely discussed by our government leaders, is really the linchpin to understanding what really needs to be changed in order for our middle class to have any type of resurgence. And it is also really important to understand that under Republican as well as Democratic administrations, even under the Obama administration of eight years, wealth inequality accelerated. It did not decrease in this country. There is something fundamentally wrong here. So this segment of bringing light into darkness begins a series of connected show segments that will reveal that within our history is a long history of concrete evidence that within each historical epoch, different methods and means to sustain unfair disadvantages to black Americans has been the rule. This is in fact what defines and proves that structural and systemic racism still reigns today in 21st century America. With slavery, it was self-evident how African-Americans were disenfranchised. However, post-emancipation proclamation, there was a period of reconstruction and it morphed very quickly into a return to substantial deficits that the African-American population had to face and came in the form mostly of Jim Crow laws. So just to reiterate, what is systemic racism? I think it's important that we indicate that U.S. systemic racism can be described as connected U.S. periods of history, which generated profound unfairness when it came to the status of African-Americans. However, they used different means and methods in each epoch to do so. These periods of time, or epochs, if you will, have been described by economists, scholars such as Professor and Dr. William Darity, who is a PhD economist and specializes in inequality and race at Duke University. And he describes these three periods as slavery up until Reconstruction, which was 1865 to 1877, 
And that was followed by the second period, which is Jim Crow laws that reigned and had their impact from 1877 to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And of course, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was a landmark civil rights and labor law in the United States that outlawed discrimination based on race and color and religion, etc. However, despite the legal language, we will see that modern-day forms of discrimination carried the day and carries the day right up from 1964 to today. So as we go back and pick up with the Jim Crow era then from 1877 to 1964, just some history. Of course, Abraham Lincoln in February of 1865 signed the 13th Amendment. However, he was assassinated a couple of months later in April 15th of 1865. But on December 6th, 1865, the 13th Amendment became an official part of the U.S. Constitution. So ostensibly, it abolished slavery. However, within its language was a major loophole referring to the 13th Amendment. It was in Section 1, quote, neither slavery or involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime where the party shall be duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to the jurisdiction. So the exception is if I get arrested and I am convicted of a crime, then I am not immune from involuntary servitude. And that's exactly what we'll see occurred in the South under the Jim Crow laws. That Reconstruction ideals, they were enforced from 1865 to 1877, but they were enforced by the Union Army. And in 1877, the Union Army withdrew from the South, which was followed by the reemergence or re oppression of white supremacy ethos that rapidly reasserted its privilege through Jim Crow laws at the inverse loss of rights to the African-American population. And so by this loophole, black codes were created, and they really were sought out to stomp out and counteract the 13th Amendment by basically criminalizing black behavior, behaviors that would not be criminal for whites, but be criminal for blacks, and they've gotten incarcerated for it. Things such as vagrancy, not being able to prove that you had a job, which of course was a major problem for people back then. And once in jail for vagrancy type issues or for looking at a a white woman in a wrong way, uh, the concept of convict leasing was connected to the black codes. And with convict leasing, a system that provides prison labor to plantation owners and private corporations was created. It ensured the cotton industry would remain unaffected once the slaves are freed. And arguably, it was worse than slavery, because if you were working in a mine or in a cotton field and being worked to death, under slavery, at least you tried to protect your slaves because they were making you so much money. However, with convict leasing, if any of your black convicts died on the job, it was a pretty simple matter of just getting them replaced by other convicts because they were getting leased by the state to these corporations. So you have African-Americans being locked up for minor charges and being used as free labor while behind bars. Some have referred to this as slavery by another name. So with this convict leasing, a system in which southern states leased prisoners to private railways, mines, and large plantations, while the states profited, prisoners earned no pay and faced inhumane dangerous and often deadly work conditions. 
Many times the lifespan was less than a couple of years in such type of work. Thousands of black people were forced into what many have termed unimaginable working conditions until the 1930s. This also signaled a shift in the racial makeup of prisoners. It's interesting that in Alabama, before, well before the Civil War, well before the Emancipation Proclamation, in 1850, 99% of those incarcerated were white. But in Alabama, by the 1880s, following the Reconstruction period, 17 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, in Alabama, 90% of those incarcerated were no longer white. In fact, 85% of the, those incarcerated were black. That is how this convict leasing worked and the black codes worked. And when you fast forward to today, close to 40% of the nation's prisoners are black, yet they're only 13% of the population. And much of this information is sourced from convict leasing, a, a, a video by Khalid Gibran Mohammed in May of 2019. It's called Black History in Two Minutes or So. So convict leasing can be seen as another method of creating more or at least sustaining the wealth inequality that blacks were facing relative to whites. And then as you turn to 1935 and the Social Security Act, the Social Security Act would exclude a long list of workers, including agricultural and domestic workers. Moreover, unemployment insurance and public assistance programs were managed by states, assuring them latitude in not only determining eligibility for benefits, but the amount of aid as well. As a result, disproportionately, large numbers of African Americans and Latinos were either denied assistance or received minimal aid. One historian calculated that more than three-fifths, 60% of black workers, those employed agricultural labor or domestic services, were excluded from coverage. Another put the figure at two-thirds of employed blacks. As a consequence, the Social Security Act of 1935 widened the racial wealth divide. When you turn to the GI Bill, the same outcomes for African Americans occurred. They continued to be getting the short end of the stick with the result of promoting and aggravating the great racial wealth divide. Essentially, the GI Bill promises were denied to a million black World War II veterans. FDR signed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act into law, also known as the GI Bill. He signed it into law June 22, 1944. There was no greater vehicle for widening the already huge wealth gap than the GI Bill, writes Ira Katznelson, page 121, in his book, When Affirmative Action Was White, An Untold History of the Racial Inequality in 20th Century America. The GI Bill included college tuition, low-cost home loans, and unemployment insurance. Even today, this legislation, which quickly became called the GI Bill of Rights, qualifies as the most wide-ranging set of social benefits ever offered by the federal government in a single comprehensive initiative. By 1956, when original GI Bill ended, nearly 8 million World War II veterans had received education or training and 4.3 million home loans worth some $33 billion had been handed out. Between 1944 and 1971, federal spending for former soldiers in this model welfare system totaled over $95 billion. By 1948, 15 percent of the federal budget was devoted to the GI Bill. 
With the help of the GI Bill, millions bought homes, attended college, started business ventures, and found jobs commensurate with their skills through these opportunities and by advancing the momentum towards suburban living. 1.2 million black veterans served in segregated ranks in World War II. I might add that I had the great privilege of interviewing Charles Chenier, a Tuskegee Airman, many years ago. And he related the World War II experience that he had as an airman and indicated the segregated living conditions on the ships that took our soldiers across the ocean to fight the Nazis. He also related that he learned in the European theater that the food being given to blacks by the U.S. Army was actually inferior than the food given to German prisoners. The Honorable Charles Chenier passed away several years ago, but the memory of our meeting and several conversations will stay with me till I leave this earth. The VA itself encouraged black veterans to apply for vocational training instead of university admissions. A full 95% of black veterans were shunted off to underfunded and overwhelmed black colleges, most of them unaccredited. As employment, college attendance, and wealth surged for whites, Disparities with their black counterparts not only continued, but widened. In 1947, only two of the more than 3,200 VA-guaranteed home loans in 13 Mississippi cities went to black borrowers. These impediments were not confined to the South. Katznelson, in his work, indicated, quote, In New York and the northern New Jersey suburbs, fewer than 100 of the 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill supported home purchases by non-whites, end quote. Again, there was no greater vehicle for widening the already huge gap between blacks and whites than the GI Bill. So following slavery, different methods and means were used in order to continue maintaining a profoundly unlevel playing field when it came to African Americans and Anglos. Following slavery, black codes, and convict leasing. Following black codes and convict leasing, came the Social Security Act and the GI Bill, which we just documented, increased and accelerated the wealth divide between blacks and whites. So when we turn our attention to modern-day forms of discrimination post-Civil Rights Act of 1964, one of the premier variables is the incarceration rates. There was an explosion of drug arrests that occurred between 1980 and 2004. In 1980, we had some 580,000 people arrested for drug abuse violations in this country. And that's from the Bureau of Justice Statistics of 1987. By 2004, that number had more than tripled to 1.7 million. This U.S. and state local arrest for drug abuse violations, this is a Bureau of Justice Statistics, is cited in the Sentencing Project, Facts About Prisons and Prisoners, which I had downloaded back in May of 2004. And a lot of it had to do with law changes. Congress adopted an Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986 that included mandatory sentencing laws. The law included a new mandatory sentencing for low-level crack cocaine offenses, and defendants convicted of possession of five grams of cocaine were subject to a five-year mandatory minimum sentence, and it took 100 times more powdered cocaine, namely 500 grams, to trigger the same incarceration penalties. And again, these incarceration rates should be seen in the light of what we just documented a few minutes ago on this show, namely that more than 80% of the defendants prosecuted 
for crack offenses were African Americans in 2004, despite the fact that two-thirds of crack users were white or Hispanic. Further evidence of crack cocaine use confirmed the racist nature of our culture into the 21st century. When we look at incarceration for crack cocaine, it is also important to look at what percentage of blacks and whites and Hispanics use crack cocaine. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, in a 1999 publication, they addressed that subject. Population estimates in the household survey on drug abuse, they estimated that some 971,000 Americans used crack cocaine in 1998. Some 49% of them were white, 34% were black, and 17% were Hispanic. Yet according to a July 5, 2006 sentencing project study and article called The Disparity of Crack Cocaine Sentencing, more than 80% of the defendants prosecuted for crack offenses were African Americans. Meanwhile, in 2004, 81.7% of the arrests were for possession of controlled substance, while only 18.3% were for the sale or the manufacture of drugs. So 20 years after the 1986 act, drug dealers were still not getting arrested in this drug war. We need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. We will be back right after this. Don't touch that dial.